Waypoint. I'm Kim. I'm on staff here. Thanks so much for joining us. Please check out the links below for our kids' ministries. Melissa and Heather have been working really hard to get this content out to your kiddos, um, and it's not something we want you to miss. We're so happy that you're here. At this time, let's jump into worship.
we are living in a time of fear. Uh, it was sudden, it was pervasive, it spread across us very quickly, and in the short term it might not be a big deal. The, the problem with fear is when it has this long-term ability to shape our lives, and so we're trying to be aware of that. And I just want to point out that the reason we're talking about this isn't just this moment that we're living in. This, this stuff with fear has been happening for thousands of years. It will happen long after this situation is in our rearview mirror. We will have fear sweep into our lives, and it's like a contagion. That's why we're doing this series called Pandemic. It can spread in our lives when we see other people afraid. And so as this stuff sweeps into our lives, we want to make wise decisions. We don't, we don't want fear to actually shape how we live. Today, we're going to look at a fourth type of fear. It's a little bit different. It actually starts on the internal parts of us. Maybe um, something from the outside could irritate it, but really most of the action happens where nobody can see. In fact, that's probably where some of the damage takes place is because it's in the quiet of our heart, we evaluate when that fear has taken place or when that fear has happened, and then we kind of hold it in, and it does some messes with us. Uh, I, th this fear has a bunch of layers to it. Uh, as I've been looking at this, we can't deal with them all, but as I've read this, I think the younger generation, the ones who are just entering college in high school right now, a little bit younger, all the research it seems to indicate that they have this fear in their lives consistently and it's having um, a real shaping effect on who they are. It's making me wonder how this situation layered on top of that will cause them to deal with even more fear. So I have questions about that. But this type of fear also takes place in the lives of all of us when we try something new. When we, when we take a risk and do something, we get exposed to this fear. And it's, it's this, this simple. I want to talk about the fear of failure. I want to talk about what happens when um, we take a risk and what comes with it is the sense of failure. Now, um, for us, uh, the question is why? Why are we so disturbed by the fear of failure? I think for some people, uh, they don't want to look like a fool. They feel like their error would cause other people to look down on them, and they don't want to do that. Others, it's even a stronger sense. It's like, I'd be a loser if I did that. And so any kind of risk that they look at, they evaluate and think, why would I take that risk? I could lose this. And so it causes them not to move, not to change, not to do anything. You can hesitate with this fear. This fear does that. It can cause you to be full of apprehension and anxiety. That's what's happening with a lot of the younger generation. But this one doesn't stop there. It also has the ability to fill you with doubt. In some cases, it's self-doubt. You just don't have any confidence in you being able or capable of doing something different. But it can also fill you with doubt towards God. And so this one, um, this one is pretty serious. And so I want to find a way to talk about it. And I want to hope that we can embrace some possibilities because th this kind of fear actually gives you a chance to learn and grow. As a staff, <laughs> we have been over the last six weeks doing some things uh, that we've never done before. This is ministry is new for us and we find ourselves in meetings. I find myself in self-evaluations making lists of things that have to be done. 
And almost all the lists are based on all of the stuff I feel like I'm failing at. Somebody asked me recently, Blair, what's new in your life? And I said to them, just right off the cuff, I'm learning new skills right now that I've never had to have before. And I fi I'm finding it very challenging. And so it's an opportunity for me to learn and grow. But it means I actually have to face this failure. I have to step into it. I have to look it in the face and go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be challenged here and accept that. And so that's a part of this, and that's a part of that fear. Uh, but I want to focus. I want to focus on a different part. Because here's the thing. If we're just talking about lighthearted stuff, and I, and I know it's not lighthearted to some of you. Some of you, you, you face these kind of fears, and they're real for you, and they cause you to hesitate. They cause you to freeze up. They cause you not to move. It could be as much as going and trying a sport. But really, what, what are you going to lose if you try a sport and you fail at it? It could be that you get a new responsibility at work and you thought, okay, I'll try it. Maybe it'll go okay. Maybe it won't. Maybe for you, it's dating somebody. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? They say no. So we have these different places. Maybe it's a hobby. It could be anything where you're trying something different. Uh, we actually had uh, a situation we're going to take a little bit of life situation that was real and we're going to blow it up into something that wasn't. But we have an illustration for what it means to maybe try to do something and then maybe think that you failed at it. And so we've got this little video that we want you to watch. I hope you'll enjoy this. Did anyone else get that weird email from Blair? You know it's a fake, right? I'm looking at it right now. It's some sort of weird spam that's using his, using his name. Does this email sound like it's from Blair? Subject line reads, peace be upon you. And then it says, hi, how are you doing? I need a favor from you. Email me as soon as you get this message. God bless. Rev. Blair Carlstrom. Yeah, he doesn't sign his emails Rev. I was new on staff when I got one of those emails, and I went to see Blair and ask him what he wanted, and he was really confused, and it took a while to figure it out, but we got to the bottom of it, and he told me that he would never sign an email with Reverend. I don't know, it was weird, but I thought it was legit. Like, obviously this is fake. I mean, one, the guy wouldn't go by Rev. Call me Blair. Call me Blair. Call me Blair. Call me Blair. Jamame Blair. I mean, he's not going by Reverend. I remember one time I called him Reverend and he gave me the most confused look of all time. So clearly, this is obviously fake. Second, did anyone see the email that it came from, the email address? I mean, I'm still the new guy, but how am I supposed to know that Blair doesn't have a personal account and emails everybody only through Waypoint? Although, he is pretty old school. That should have been a red flag. And number three, did anyone see the subject line, peace be unto you? <laughs> I mean, obviously there's more, but I'm just giving you the top three. I didn't know anything about that. I, I've never heard anybody call him Reverend. 
Um, I didn't even realize it was a thing. Uh, I received an email about a week ago and they were asking a ton of information and I was supplying it. I'm in big trouble. Nick, I need to talk to you about something I did. I really messed up. I sent them a ton of information. So uh, yeah, I tried to calm her down and let her know it's not that big of a deal. Um, between you and me, I actually like to make those emails up from time to time and send them out from a, from a fake Waypoint address. Yeah, I know Blair doesn't like being called Reverend, but hey, I like to stir the pot. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Eh, I probably shouldn't. Well, maybe I will. Have you ever been there at a job when you felt like you were failing? Like there's a hole in your stomach that you feel like, oh, I've just messed this up and I suppose it could happen for any of that things that we listed before. It could be you tried out for a sport and you just feel like the fear of failure is gnawing away at you from the inside. It could happen with all kinds of things. A major that you took at school that's not working out, now you have to feel like, I've got to tell people I'm failing at this. Well, that stuff is bad, but it can be opportunities for you to learn and grow. But one that's hard for us to see as an opportunity to learn and grow is one I want to talk about as we narrow our focus down to something that happens in the lives of people who follow Jesus, who are trying to honor Jesus with their lives. I want to talk about what we do when the fear of failure is too attached to moral decisions that we make. What, what happens when we've been trying to be really good at work, but that piece of gossip is so good, we decide that we've got to share it with people? What happens when that website that we've been trying to avoid, we click on anyway, and all of a sudden now we're wrestling with all kinds of things that we, we know is not good and helpful, but now it's just part of the struggle that we deal with? What happens when you're at home on on working from your office and you're wasting time like you're just taking advantage of your employer and you kind of know it but you've been wasting it and what do you do with that because now you're starting to feel the regret from that it could be that you weren't honest with a family member it could be that you let friends influence you to do something it could be all kinds of stuff that you face maybe something big that you struggled with and now you're now you're dealing with this addiction and you didn't want that in your life and you thought you had battled it to the end and you were good and instead of being good it's causing problems or maybe it was something that you said it could be just that words that came out of your mouth that you regret that you have said but you can't get them back and now it's hurt people See, the problem with the fear of failure is it, it brings all of these other, other parts of this fear into our lives. We have anxiety from it. We feel depression. We feel all that sort of stuff. But then you add on guilt, too. You add on doubt. And it becomes a real burden that stresses our lives. I've always found it kind of difficult to talk about this subject um, because as I want to get into um, the way I think we need to think about this or deal with this in our lives, there have been people who said, man, if you don't talk firmly about sin, people will think it's okay to just go out and sin and just ask forgiveness. And it's no big deal. That's not what I think. 
I think choosing to honor to God by the way you live is critically important for our lives. But I also want to be careful because part of what makes this, this fear of failure so difficult in people's lives is they're afraid that they're going to be judged. It's why so many people keep it quiet and hidden in their souls is because they're convinced that if they actually bring it out into the open, somebody will judge them. And I don't want to be on that crew either. So I want to find some way to talk about this in a healthy way. And I think there is a chance for this fear to actually be healthy. We talked about that when we started this series and we said, listen, it's possible for fear to be healthy for us because it causes us to make wise decisions. And this one could do that. This one could allow us to look at choices that we were about to make and go, I see how this could torpedo my life or somebody else's, and I'm not going to do this. But in order for the fear of failure to be a positive in our life, it has to be in the right place in our lives. See, there's a priority that has to come in front of that. The priority that comes in front of that is a desire to love God with all our hearts, minds, and souls. And when that's in the right place, you can have the fear of looking at different consequences and saying, I don't want to do that. I don't want to torpedo my life. And you'll back away from that, and that's great. But if it becomes number one, if it becomes the primary way that you look at your relationship with Jesus, there's a couple things that will join the fear of failure that will mess you up. And I want to look at a story of somebody who faced an epic failure. Uh, part of the reason it's epic is not just because it was a big situation. It was a very public situation, and there was nothing that she could do about that. And so she's facing this, and she seems to make some right choices that allow Jesus to do some stuff in her life that wouldn't have happened if her fear of failure was primarily number one. So I want to take you to a controversial section of Scripture. The only reason it's controversial is this part of the Scripture is not found in early manuscripts. It's found in um, the later ones. We don't know who added it. We don't know if John added it. We don't know where it came from exactly. But at the time, they really felt like this was still meant to be part of the Scriptures. And so we're going to treat it as such. And I want to take you to John chapter 8. And I want to introduce you to where we're, we find ourselves. John 8, 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And you might think, oh, it's a big issue. That's why you think this is epic. No, it's epic because they are not satisfied with just dealing with this. It's how they're dealing with this. Look at how the verse continues. They stand her before the group. Where is the group? Well, there's a lot going on here, so I want to give you some tidbits because it makes this story really come alive. We could spend our whole time getting background because there's so much to it, but I'm just going to give you the short snippets. They are in the temple courts. This is a very public place. This is a very sacred place, and they have dragged this woman to meet Jesus in that, in that location in front of everybody. So they are attempting to humiliate her in front of a very large crowd of people who probably are considered righteous in this moment. Now, um, their timing is pretty suspect too. In fact, their timing is the whole point of why they're doing this. So let me give you some background on that. This is mid-month. At the beginning of the month, a Jewish festival started. It went for a few days, and then there's a 10-day chunk of time where you are given an opportunity to make things right between you and God. 
You would do that by making sacrifices. You would do that by ritual purifications that you would do. There would be different things that you would do to set your house in order internally between you and God. And this, I'm going to use their words. This is how they talked about it. So that you could be included in the book of life. They would say for the next year, you're now in good standing with God. And at the that same month next year, you'd have to go through the same thing to be in good standing with God. But this woman is brought to Jesus the day after this festival is over. There is no more opportunity for her to make things right with God. In fact, she got caught during the festival doing something that was wrong, and now they've got her before Jesus, and it's serious. It's not just serious because of what they're asking for, and what they're asking for is scary. This is found in verse 5. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you think we should do, Jesus? Now again, uh, why are they asking Jesus this question? Why should we do this, Jesus? Well, there, you need some more background. They're asking Jesus this question because the, the previous day, the day right before this happened, was the end of the festival. And part of the end of the festival was a massive parade and celebration that happened at the temple. There was stuff going on all week where they would go and get living water. They would get water from a running source and they would bring it and pour it on the altar. But on this day, it was special. They would get extra and they would bring, and there would be crowds of people, and people were shouting, Hosanna, and there was trumpets blaring. The whole thing was an incredible celebration. And in the middle of this, the scriptures record that Jesus stood up and yelled across that courtyard, I am living water. In other words, this Hosanna, this salvation that you're seeking is found in me. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they heard this. And they were ticked. And they decided that they would create a no-win scenario for Jesus. So they dragged this woman before who's been caught in adultery. And here's the trap. You've been talking about how you're living water and salvation. But if you stone this woman, if you say we should follow the law of Moses and stone this woman, you're no better than the rest of us. And all this salvation talk goes away. But if you say, oh, I'm going to act on my desire to save this woman and protect her, then we're going to ask everybody, why should you trust this guy? He's going against the law of Moses. It's a beautiful trap. Like the trap is fantastic, but the stakes are high. Because these guys have paraded a woman who they're willing to take her life, but they're also willing to take her life at a time when their own culture believed that she could not make things right with God and she would be eternally separated from Him if she died. This is kind of cruel stuff. And in the face of this, this woman and Jesus now stand. And I, I, I hope you'll go and read all of John 8, 1 through 11. I hope you'll digest this for a little bit because one of the things that you will notice is that she says nothing. This is weird. This is an odd thing because if, if it were you and me, we would defend ourselves. We would try to plead for our lives. Maybe she just thought, I'm guilty. I've done this. I have no choice. And maybe she just kind of accepted that. But the thing is, I have watched people who have been guilty. They've done it. And their response was different. And I think what happens 
is when fear of failure becomes your number one priority, the thing that kind of slips in with that is a desire to justify what we did, a desire to excuse it, a desire to say, well, I wouldn't have done that if. If they wouldn't have said that, I wouldn't. I excuse, I blame, I shift all of that to somebody else because I fear failure so much, I'd, I'd rather blame somebody else. It's nowhere in this text. Nowhere do you find this woman saying, where's the guy? Like, I'm not the only one here. Nowhere in the text do you find her saying, he's married. Like, I'm not, what's the deal here? Or it's just love, come on, we love each other. What's the problem with that? You find none of that. All you find is her acceptance that she failed. If it was her primary motivation to avoid, she would have to do everything to avoid that, but it's not. It's lower on the scale, and so she remains quiet, which allows Jesus to do what he needs to do in the situation. Jesus would come to our hearts, but sometimes he can't get past all the excuses that we put in the way to deal with a real problem. But in this case, he gets that chance. It's just that his response to this is pretty mysterious. Uh, people have talked about this for years. I think the best way to help you understand what's going on here is for us to go outside. So I want to take you there and help you understand why Jesus' response here is so cool. So the scriptures record Jesus doing this as his response. It's in the middle of verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. <laughs> Now, I've been around for a long time. I've heard a lot of people talk about this because it's kind of mysterious as to what people did. And I've heard all kinds of things. People have said, oh, what Jesus wrote in the ground were their girlfriend's names. And he had all of these theories that he was writing in the ground. Except there's one problem with what he actually wrote being the cause for the, the people leaving, um, which is what happens. Every one of them, from oldest to youngest, will leave after he starts doing this. And the question is, why? Why would they leave based on what he's doing here? Well, I've been to the Temple Mount. I've been a couple times. The last time I went, I took a couple pictures quickly. We're going to have them up for you so that you can see those. And here's what's a little different. Um, we, we were there at a time when there, there was a kerfuffle going, and our guy was like, we have to get moving. We can't stay here. And he's been there a lot, so when he said move, we just moved. We got out of there. We didn't know what was going on. But I took a couple pictures that at least are representative of what you could see there. And what you're going to notice is that there's no dirt. There's nothing like this on the Temple Mount. It's a stone structure. It was made out of granite and marble. It would have been beautiful during Jesus' day. But it's not, it's not having this. Now, there might have been a few grassy places. But if you want to get a picture in your mind of what Jesus was doing, it would be far more accurate to go over and to see him drawing on this. Like there might be a small layer of dust on here, but this is this is far closer to the surface that Jesus would have been drawing on with his finger. And the, the reality is, if that's the case, then whatever he was writing, it had nothing to do with what would have been seen here that would have caused people to leave. So why are they going anywhere? Well, the reason they're going somewhere, at least the reason I believe they're going somewhere, is there was a Jewish teaching technique called a remez. It means hint. And what a rabbi would do is they would tell 
you um, either a section of scripture through a phrase or a word or a quote that would cause you to hint back to that section of scripture. Sometimes it wouldn't be something they said, sometimes it would be something they did. It would be an action remez. And you would remember what they were doing was found in another section of scripture and you would recall and read that. Now here's what's interesting about this thing. It's not just the verse that they were trying to get you to recall. They're trying to get you to recall the whole section of scripture. I want to read the verse that I think Jesus was trying to get them to recall when he bent down and started drawing on the ground, on the concrete, on the stone ground there. This is in Jeremiah chapter 17. Um, in the middle of 13, it says this. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Now you gotta remember, these guys were there confronting Jesus because he had stood up and said he was living water. They were trying to trap him with this. And what Jesus does is he gets down and he does this action remez that recalls that I'm gonna write your names in the dust because you're forsaking who I am. And this would have been a very powerful thing. Now, it wouldn't have just been that verse. There would have been others too. I wanna to talk about those. So we're gonna head back in because it's cold and windy. Now remember, in Jeremiah 17, it's not just the verse that he hinted at, it's the verses around that. And so you'll find some really interesting stuff in Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah uh, 9, it talks about how the heart is desperately wicked. And in verse 10, it says this, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. So Jesus is hinting, and as these guys are remembering this scripture and they're thinking about it, they're realizing that they are going to be judged for the deeds they deserve. And it's why they start leaving. It's why they start going away. They realize there's more to the story. But probably one of my favorite verses that Jesus hints to in this section of scripture is verse 12. It says, A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. A throne exalted from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. And I think the truth of this is so beautiful because here's, here's the reality. We are all in need of sanctuary. And the scripture just revealed we're going to be judged. We are, God is going to look at our deeds and he's going to give us based on what we deserve. But he wants you to understand his heart in this. The heart of the judge is the kind of heart that has been trying to set up a sanctuary for mankind from the beginning. And it continues with Jesus coming, dying, being the person who will offer you forgiveness, giving you hope, being living water that would refresh your life and change your soul. This is who he is. And so when he says, listen, I am going to judge you. It's, you have to understand who he's going to judge you from, what perspective he's going to judge you from. So here's the thing. Um, when you elevate the fear of failure to the primary role, in one case, you might end up with the sense that, ah, I've got to find a way to justify this. Or you do the second thing. And the second thing is just as brutal. You come up with all the rules that you can follow so that you can say, I'm justified, I don't need his sanctuary. 
I'm good. I don't want this kind of personal thing with God where I feel responsible when I harm or dishonor him. I want to have all the rules. And so I gather in as many rules as I can and I keep myself following those rules so that I can say, I did it. I'm perfect. I I followed everything that you wanted. I made you happy. I satisfied you. Why won't you look the other way? It's just a small error. And besides, technically, I followed it because of this rule. Uh, This is what happens when you don't believe that you need sanctuary. When you put that off. And this, um, the reality is, our hope, the only thing that we need is grace from God. The only thing that's going to make a difference is living water that renews us and refreshes us. And so when we replace that, because our fear of failure is so great that we would rather set the rules and follow the rules. By the way, all the Pharisees had this issue. They had piled up so many rules that they couldn't get past that Jesus was calling out their hearts in this. And when they realized he was, that my heart is what you're talking about, my heart is what you're going to measure, they walked away one by one, oldest to youngest. Um, What I think is fascinating is that you didn't see anywhere where this woman is calling out for rules, where she's trying to justify um, what her position was. All she gives is silence, which gives Jesus a chance to do his thing. And when he does, the story starts unfolding differently. I want you to see this. This is in verse 10. In verse 9, they've started to leave one by one. It says, oldest to youngest left. And I think it happened that way because they were remembering the remez. They were remembering the hint. And he says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And these are her first words. She hasn't spoken a word up to this point. And I think you have to read these words with a sense of shakiness, where she's choking back tears. She was just facing death. She was just facing separation from God forever. And it looks like she's about to avoid all of this. And she says, No, sir. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. See, Jesus was facing a test. And you would think that maybe he was mostly focused on himself because they were trying to discredit his ministry. But it turns out what he was deeply concerned about was the life of this woman. And so he reached out to her and he offered her hope. See, if if you read this for a second and you think he just gave her a free pass, you don't understand what happened here. What he did was he offered her a life without condemnation. It's different because he is going to die for the sin that she committed. He's going to pay a price for that. There is an element that we have to understand when we choose to dishonor God with the choices that we make, there is a price that is paid But God, from the very beginning, has tried to offer a sanctuary, and it continues through the life of Jesus, who comes to you and says, I will offer you forgiveness. I'll offer you hope. I will offer you a new life if you're willing to accept that you failed. If you're willing to struggle with this idea that you can't be perfect but I'm going to cover you, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to be your sanctuary, then you can make a run at it. But for many of us, the thought of failing, even morally, has caused us to excuse what we do 
has caused us to come up with rules so that we don't have to face our failure. And in so doing, we have withheld ourselves from the very thing that would bring us rescue. This woman didn't do that. She remained silent. No excuses, no rules. And in the end, she receives what we're all given a chance for. No condemnation. Can I just ask you right now, are you facing a failure in your life, a moral failure, where you've been excusing it? Or have you been trying so hard not to have a failure that you've designed a whole set of rules that you can follow and feel good about yourself and you pat yourself on the back and the whole time you've missed out on a loving God who can get close enough to you to say, listen, you are failing, but I've got you. There's no condemnation with me. I will forgive you. I will pick you up. I will let you have the kind of life that you were meant to live. She was told to go and live in a way that honored God. And that kind of, that kind of lesson was learned. Did she? I don't know. It's the same thing that happens with us. See, our fear of failure prevents us from learning and growing. And some of the things that prevents us from learning and growing are learning and growing about God's love, God's grace, God's sanctuary that allows us to honor Him with our lives. Maybe it's time, if you've been struggling with excuses or rules, maybe it's time to put that down and get close so that Jesus can do what He does. Offer you hope, sanctuary, living water for your life. Can I pray with you? God, I ask that you would bring um, the power of that hope into our lives. Uh, many of us do not have a sense of hope because we're trying to play by our rules. We're trying to excuse our behavior. And we've missed out on the one thing we need, you. So I ask that you would open our hearts to that. Pull us in. Help us take steps and move. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you've missed any of our services, you're able to view them on YouTube. And if there's anything that you need, please do not hesitate to email us. We'll see you next week.